ומאמן, הכשפיל הליבה, אינפינדר ליבטית מרבי מנץ, אינפינדר ליבטית מרבי מנץ, אויפנט מנשן Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Radiant Others, a Klezmer podcast. I let the intro music play a little extra long today because we've got a really special guest on today's episode, Ethel Rehm. Ethel is a singer. She's singing back there. She is a musical organizer. She has organized concerts and all sorts of things for all different kinds of folks music. She's a teacher. She's taught Balkan singing and Yiddish singing and all sorts of kinds of mostly unaccompanied women's singing styles. And she's really a fierce advocate of the arts. She was the artistic director of Center for Traditional Music and Dance for many, many years. It was originally called the Balkan Arts Group. And her work there really opened up a lot of possibilities for funding folk music in the nonprofit world. So, yeah, she's a powerhouse. That's Ethel Rehm. She is a powerhouse. Sitting down with Ethel to talk with her was really the first time that we've ever actually gotten to really talk with each other and get to know each other. Uh, one of the things about being a trombone player and one of the things about being a singer is that if you're at the same workshop or festival, say a place like Klez Canada, I think they try to keep us on opposite sides of the camp, you know, so I don't, particularly so I don't drown the singers out or my classes don't drown the singers out. But it was really interesting to talk to Ethel and get to know her and talk to her about the early days of the Klezmer revival. She worked with uh, Zev Feldman and Andy Statman to present Dave Tarras, the clarinetist Dave Tarras, in a big concert in 1978 that was one of the first major events of what later became the Klezmer revival. And I think it was sort of a catalyst for a lot of folks who later became major voices in this music. So she's just been around. She's done a million different things all of them really wild and interesting, and I'm just glad I got to talk to her. So before we get to our conversation, I got a couple of things to ask you all about. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate and review it in iTunes or wherever you're listening to it. Please share it on any social media that you use. Please tell your friends about it. Please let people know that I'm doing this, and if they're interested in hearing conversations between people who are really involved in Yiddish music, Yiddish culture, please let them know about this podcast and ask them to check it out. All right, that's enough for me this time, and I just want to say thank you to everybody who waited an extra couple weeks for this episode. Uh, we were dealing with some pretty crazy stuff over here. And it took a little while to get it finished. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Here's my conversation with Ethel Rehm. <laughs> 
Okay, Ethel Reim. It is really nice to be here in your beautiful place. Thank you. It's wonderful to have you here. Yeah, I would say that you have an amazing shower curtain. Just from having checked out. <laughs> Marimekko. <bathroom>. Yeah. <laughs> Dress for little Mary. Yeah. So you just mentioned that you grew up in the Bronx, but mm-hmm. had you lived in the Bronx for a while? I grew up in the Bronx. I was in the Bronx till I was about, um, oh, I don't know, to 1963 I was in the Bronx, and then I moved to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Where in Manhattan? Uh, actually, an incredible apartment for $60 a month. A three-and-a-half-room apartment, unbelievable, right across the street from the American Museum of Natural History. Oh, okay. Not bad. Not bad. (laughs) It's interesting. I was just listening to a podcast on the way up here that was talking about Manhattan in the 80s, and that was a time, and people were like, well, that was this time when things were happening, and, uh, you know, but then the 60s, that was when things were happening, you know? (laughs) It was affordable, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, $60 a month, that's probably... Unbelievable. It's probably (laughs) several thousand percent more now, right? Oh, for sure. (laughs) Probably $25,000, to rent. Uh, Yeah, yeah, right. But So that was your first... Was that where you were were an adult now, and you were... uh, This was like your first place, or was it something like that? No, my first place was actually in the Bronx. Oh, okay. (laughs) On Holland Avenue, uh-huh. Northeast Bronx, okay. sometimes referred to as Little Russia. The Coops were there, and I was on 2504 Bronx Park East. Awesome. Mason and Bronx Park East. So was this the this apartment in Manhattan, though? Was this the apartment? So I heard from at least one other person that people would used to come hang out with you after rehearsals, maybe after Capella rehearsals. Oh, that's that was when much I, later. that's when it wasn't well. I, I, I was in Philadelphia for eight years from 65 to 74. Whoa. <laughs> and then I moved to 100 West Housen Street, which was quite illegal because it was not residential. Okay. And, uh, I took an apartment on the fifth floor. The reason that we could get in is that we all worked at home. So I was teaching at the time. My neighbor was a film uh, editor. Tom Malone from the Blues Brothers was on the fourth floor. No kidding. No kidding. Charlemagne Palestine, an artist, was on the second floor. I certainly know Charlemagne Palestine. You do? Yeah. Oh, how do you know Charlemagne? Well, not personally, but it's through the experimental music scene. And oh, I, how I have amazing. friends who perform with him or something ah. and yeah just know his music you yeah know? so he was on the second floor what a world and um it was it, it's it's really an incredible new york story that building but that's maybe for another time we'll, we'll get there i okay. think so okay let's, <laughs> we just jumped around a lot let's just back things up again um yeah i think we could even just so you grew up in the bronx did you grow up with you you just asked me whether i spoke yiddish and the answer is not well Everything I know is from song lyrics. Oh, that's a so lot. It's pretty good, you yeah. know. But uh, you grew up speaking Yiddish. No, no. My no. Par- I grew up in a Yiddish-speaking home. Got it. And uh, my parents always spoke Yiddish to one another. And they were part of a movement of, of progressive Jews that wanted uh, their children to speak Yiddish and know Yiddish culture. And they were part of the JPFO, Jewish People's Fraternal Order, the Shula system. And I was went to Shulains. Okay. Starting at the age of, I don't know, maybe six or seven. 
So I learned the letters, and I could read, and I could write, and speak a little bit. And I, I had it in my ear, and I sang Yiddish songs forever. Growing up. Growing up. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, was this a world that sort of was mostly Jewish growing up? Like, were you surrounded by Jews, or was it sort of a very multicultural thing, or somewhere in between? Well, it's an, it was an interesting neighborhood. Everything east of... Uh, White Plains Road was pretty much Jewish, and a lot of people, milliners, garment workers, furriers. Uh, my dad was a presser uh, in the garment industry. And uh, so that section was Jewish. And then across um, White Plains Road was pretty Italian, homeowners, small homes. And the Coops, which was a very amazing experimental uh, living situation was on my side and was pretty much working class, uh, pretty much Jewish, um, and some African-American. Yeah, that's a whole thing I don't really know any, enough about, for sure. So you call them the coops, but you didn't live there. Cooperative housing. Yeah, right. I was a block away. So <laughs> can you tell me just a little bit about what that was? You said it's like a grand experiment. Um, I wish I knew really more. There was a film that was made about the coops. It grand experiment in that it was cooperatively owned. So all the people who lived there were owners. Hmm. That doesn't exist anymore, right? Oh, no, no. I mean, it was sold years later. And um, very cohesive and very progressive left-wing community. Yeah, what an interesting thing to grow up in. Yeah. So yeah. sounds like Yiddish and left-wing politics and some sense of at least European multiculturalism and maybe also American multiculturalism were just around growing up? Well, I, I, well, I had a sort of unusual um, growing up. I mean, I was into traditional music forever, yeah. you know, from a lot of different cultures. The sound, the kind of communication that happened just meant everything to me, and it was just, it struck me so. It was just very, very deep. Um, so they're in our building in the garment industry, some of the uh, Jewish men were married to Italian women or vice versa. Uh, so I, my parents would have people over in the evening, and the way they entertained themselves is they would sing. Mm -hmm. And so they sang Yiddish, they sang Italian, uh, they were all East European Jews, so they sang Russian. No Polish, actually. Yeah, it was, it was a very... The whole community was cohesive. All the kids that went to school... To PS 96, I would say, oh, 90%, 95% uh, were Jewish. And then in my school, there was one African-American kid, um, a few Italian kids. Everyone else was Jewish. And the teachers, um, Irish and Jewish. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting. That is really interesting. I think that, you know, having grown up in a city in Philadelphia, it was a predominantly... African-American experience, especially once I started going to public schools. But before that, I was in private school a little while, and it was just all, as far as I could tell, it was probably not, but it felt like <laughs> everybody was Jewish, and uh -huh. I didn't know non-Jews. But that meant something completely different by the time I was growing up. You know, Yiddish was long gone, mm -hmm. at least in, for this community. Mm -hmm. in, you said you were really into different kinds of music from all over the world forever. What ways were you absorbing those besides the stuff that you were hearing from the people around you? Well, let's see. Um, in terms of recordings, 
I used to go to the Stanley Theater, which showed Russian films. Um, and you could get L, uh, uh, actually 78s before LPs. You could get 78s in the back there, and I would get um, Pyatnitsky Chorus or some other Russian choir. Um, the Fyodorov Sisters, fabulous uh, singers. Uh, who ended up in Moscow and they were recorded and beautiful. Have you heard of the few that are oh, no. just gorgeous music? Um, there are five of them, mm-hmm. I think. And then the daughter started singing with them. They were pretty much singing in the uh, probably late 40s into the early 60s. Um, then I used to go to uh, Hootenannies, so I was already connected to that whole world of folk music. Uh, and they would have people singing in different languages. Of course, in those days, uh, the people, for the most part, who sang in other languages, they sang the melody and the words in the other language, but there was no real sense of the actual style. So I, I sort of noticed this as a very young person, and, um, and so I think if there was a thread through my entire life, it was really to be able to get to that root way of singing, to that traditional styling that was so incredible for me. Mm, yeah. It I think of it as like the easiest way to describe it is all the stuff you can't write down on paper easily. <laughs> you right? got it. You got it. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, that's definitely something that I think of you as sort of carrying that really strongly in your own performances. Mm. And, the, uh, and I haven't yet gotten to taking a class with you at one of these things, but someday. So it sounds like the work that you've sort of made your life's work has just been the same thing that you started when you were a kid. So how did it come to be that, I mean, well, I want to hear a lot about like how Balkan Arts Group and all that stuff came together, but how did it come to be that your passion as a person sort of, you started to see that possibility as a career. I mean, you said you were in Philadelphia, so was there an academic component to it? or No, no. So the way it started as a career, I never thought about it as a career. You have to understand that in those years you could really live on very little money. Rents were very low. And, um, you know, the jobs I had were like two, three days a week, or, you know, if I earned $75 in a week, that was a lot of money. And... The, let's see, the trajectory is interesting. So I went to PS96, and then I went to Christopher Columbus High School. I went to Camp Kinderland uh, from the age of four. They almost kicked me out because I was so young. Wow. Um, but then they saw that I was the only kid who could tie her shoelaces, make her bed. <laughs> I was so independent. So they said, oh, good, we'll keep her. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, they marched me to the director's office and said, this child is not, is only four years old. Get rid of her. Was this a sleepaway camp? Yeah. Whoa. It was wonderful. It was opposite Kinder Ring right. on Sylvan Lake. But you, you were cool with sleeping, being away from home for a couple of weeks. Well, I mean, I I had an, uh, an unusual history. My mother died when I was three days old. Oh, okay. And I was in an orphanage. From then on till about three years and a few months. Wow, I did not know that. So when I went to camp, I was used to it. Right, yeah. <laughs> it was normal. I wonder where that independence <laughs> came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
So uh, camp, there was singing, and certain people that came through camp were better singers than others, and I would gravitate towards them, and I got very, you know, excited about that. I learned about Folkways records when I was very young, and I bought all the Woody Guthrie records and the Lead Belly records, and these are my favorite, favorite singers. Um, and there were, there weren't very, and then Peggy Seeger, yeah, as a as a uh, a bridge <laughs> from traditional singing to you know more contemporary interpretation, um, and I had my own little phonograph recorder uh, player in my room, about fifteen by fifteen by seven, and I would put my records on. I would shut the door and I would listen to music the whole day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I think what happened is. People who were already involved in one way or another with traditional music would sort of see me and say, ah, let's nab her, because what they saw was someone who was passionate about this. And that's what happened uh, with uh, Folkways. I started working. I did, what you call it, uh, graphics, you know. But graphics in those days, you know, you had sheets of paper and a a drawing board and a a T-square, and you made it. Uh, level and you pasted down things and so I did the booklets for about th- uh, two three years wow. for Folkways and I used to put a little EG because my uh, birth name was Goldstein which I found out was really Safirovich but that's another story <laughs> we'll get to all of it I hope <laughs> yeah so um, so I did paste up for them and I was connected with Folkways and I would see Moash every day and Pete Seeger would come through and Peggy Seeger would come through and Ewan McCall would come through and John Cohen would come through and different people doing the graphics different people doing the recordings and this was moving into the uh, heavy civil rights movement years uh, 19... 59, 60, 61, uh, SNCC was already started, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, and the bus rides to the South and the sit-ins. Um, and, and that was my world. I was in the midst of it, sound-wise, people-wise. Um, and it was extraordinary, you know, and I didn't have to worry about... Uh, I think my apartment in the Bronx was also about $40 or something on Holland Avenue. And that was a three-room apartment. Oh, wow. Big. Yeah. Um, and I commuted. You know, if you lived in the Bronx, you commuted to Manhattan. <laughs> um, and then in 1965, I was still working. I had left uh, my job at Folkways. And Oak Publications started when I was at Folkways. Do you know about Oak? No. Oh, oh, they have incredible. They have an incredible catalog of traditional music. And um, oh, there's the Ewan McCall songbook. Ruth Rubin did a songbook for them that she asked me to do chords to the songs. And I, I look at those chords and I die every <laughs> time. It's like, oh God, no. I mean. <laughs> Terrible. I mean, I don't know where my head was, but at any rate. Um, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, Art Rosenbaum did books. I mean, they had a catalog of maybe uh, 200 books of folk wow. music. It's uh, wonderful. Yeah, O Publications. Oak, O-A-K. Oak. Yeah. yeah. And I live in Briar Oaks now. Yeah, right. So, um, so that was that whole period of time. Then I moved to Philadelphia. I had, um, okay, let's back up a little bit. <laughs> I started um, 
I was asked to lead a chorus for the people that were going to Finland to the World Youth Festival. And I said, okay. And so I took the songs that I had, several of them that I had done as a member of the Jewish Young Folk Singers. That was under the leadership and direction of Bob de Cormier, incredible conductor and inspiration and wonderful, wonderful person uh, who died fairly recently, I think, uh, in his 90s. Um, and that was a weekly affair. And uh, although I always preferred smaller configurations of people and not large choruses, um, this worked for me. I was like 14, 15, 16. Uh, and then they had another version of it for the more advanced singers, and I was with that for about a year or two. Um, and the next musical uh, project was The Harvesters, mm. and that was with my husband, Walter Rame, hence the name Rame, mm -hmm. and gotcha. his cousin, Joyce Gluck, and her husband, Ronnie Gluck. Mm -hmm. So we were an entity for, I don't know, two, three, four years. And in fact, we went out to Los Angeles in 1958, uh, and that's when I met Mike Janis, who was someone who scoured the record stores we had record stores in those days, <laughs> and <laughs> very different. I still remember those. <laughs> and you know, and he'd pick up Georgian records and Hungarian records and 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 Moravian records, and I mean, he had an incredible collection. Uh, I think one of his parents was Polish, one was Ukrainian. Mike taught himself Yiddish, and he spoke Russian and Ukrainian. Was a fantastic singer. Wow! Uh, just a, a firebrand. Um, and so we sang as the Harvesters at the Ash Grove, which turns out was their first year, 1958, because we did their, I went to the 50th anniversary in 2008, mm. uh, which was really nice. And by then, um, the Harvested had a, a mixed repertoire of American, Yiddish, and Russian. Um, it was in 1958 that I heard the uh, Le Mystère. They weren't called Le Mystère then. Actually, it wasn't Le Mystère. It was the Derjavan Ensemble, which was the uh, national ensemble of Bulgaria under the direction of Philippe Kutev. Yeah. And I first heard Polegnalai Tudora. Uh -huh. Polegnalai Tudora. Yeah. Oh, and it melted my heart. That's a real Just, heart melter. Oh, so beautiful. And uh, when I came back, let's see, let's integrate this with coming back from the World Youth Festival from Finland. So that was 1961, I think. And I went out, uh, the harvesters were uh, in L.A. in 58, and then I was out in California again in 61, and I went to Highlander Folk School and met Hetty West and Julius Lester and Guy Carawan, whom I actually knew from an earlier time because he would sometimes substitute for Bob de Cormier with the Jewish Young Folk Singers, two non-Jews. I love it. Love it. And um, at any rate, so... Uh, so when I came back from Finland, um, Francine Brown, who was Francine Kamen at, 
when I knew her as uh, when we met, I was, I guess, five years old, and she may have been six. Okay. And we lived next door to each other in the Bronx. Yeah. I was in 3F. She was in 3E. Oh, wow. And we used to play piano. Uh, we shared a wall, and I <laughs> played one part, and she played the other part, and we would play no through kidding. the wall. That's amazing. Oh, God. What a great story. Oh, so um, so she said, why are you doing this course? Why don't you? And in the meantime, I'll back up just a little and get back to Francine. Sure. Any place that I went, you know, and I could gather two or three uh, young women, I would teach them a part and we would sing because I loved the sound of women's voices in harmony together. And I mentioned the Fyodorov sisters, and that was their sound. Um, and then even though Philippe could have had the choir, again, it was all women's voices, maybe two, three parts, sometimes four. A lot of the songs were just three parts. So I would transcribe them from the recording. This is before the amazing Slow Downer. I know, what a tool. Oh, God, what an incredible tool. We'll talk about that for the Yiddish singing. Oh, yeah. So we would get together, like at Highlander, I had Hetty and Candy Carawan, who... Who I ended up marrying, Guy Carawan. So we, I would teach them the parts and teach them the words. And so everywhere I went, I would have two, three, four women. <clears throat> We'd get together, we would sing, and it was heaven. back to Francine, uh, when I came back from Finland, she said, why don't you just start, you know, a group with just women? So I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, three voices on the melody, two voices uh, in the middle, and two voices on the bottom. Good, we need seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I went through, uh, I called different friends, because we were all friends, which is a plus and a minus for a, a professional singing group. I can imagine. <laughs> um, and we had our group. Uh, we actually had two different women for the first year. And by the second year, we had two other women uh, that came in, and we were seven. And so that was the beginning of the Penny Whistlers. And um, the repertoire reflected pretty much what we did with the harvesters, except without instruments for the most part. Uh, and with the addition of Bulgarian, Macedonian, Serbian songs. Right. I mean, it's such an interesting situation. I was listening to the Penny Whistler's record mm. last night, huh. and it's great. I mean, it's and the harmonies are great, and the performances are really amazing. What was interesting to me about what you were saying is that there's no careerism. There's no sense of it's really just the people you're around, and then making the most of what was happening, you mm-hmm. know, and mm-hmm. some opportunities. I think that's so interesting in two directions. On the one hand, 
it says a lot about like make something special with just the people you're with. On the other hand, a lot of people from the outside, maybe me or maybe somebody might look at that and say, well, that was where the scene was. That was where the stuff that inspires me was happening and they did it because I don't know why, you know? And so it's so interesting. I think that nowadays you could never have, or it would be very difficult to have such a free life. Totally. Unless you were independently wealthy. Yeah, that helps. Or have, you know, I, I've met some people who have still figured out how to sort of live mm-hmm. beneath the surface in right. certain ways. And they, but to have that mix of access to stuff you know, and mix of different people, people who are famous, people who are not famous, people who are sort of on the forefront of movements, people who are in the back. I think that doesn't happen as often to have that big mix anymore. So that's just really interesting is Mm -hmm. that you even can, we've gotten up to the penny whistlers and there's not really, it's just sort of going with the flow. Yeah, it was interesting. We had two opportunities to sort of go wider and, uh, and I wasn't interested in doing that. We had Melanie, I forgot her last name, the singer. Mm. She did that song, Poor Little Hungry Kids Out on Their Own. I think a song about Woodstock. So I had kind of connection to all of these people, but I, I, it just it didn't speak to me as the traditional song spoke to me. So To sort of write original stuff in general or to go for commercial success? I, did, I don't think I thought of it as go for commercial success. I thought of it as just doing what I really like to do. <laughs> sure, sure. But that's, <laughs> that's what you saw them doing or what? No, that's what I saw us doing. The Penny saw, Whistlers. Yeah, when you, when you said turning away, what do you call it? You say, chances to go bigger that you sort of turned yeah, away from? Yeah, they, they wanted us to open for Melanie at Carnegie Hall or something uh. and then sing with her. And it just, it, the dress didn't fit right. Or, uh-huh, okay. Or the clothes didn't fit right. Gotcha. So that's so interesting that just going along, you sort of find yourself at the record business and all this stuff. I mean, that's something that, you know, first of all, whether there's a record business anymore is a good question. But just even, yeah, you never had to search for anything in a way. It was just, I mean. It's true. No, no, no. It's true. And what I said before that people would sort of identify me as, oh, you know, when I was working with Sing Out, I, again, was very interested in, I mean, there was no way to, to transcribe something that conveyed even some of the styling, but I wanted desperately to do that. I think Bartuk talked about it as prescriptive and descriptive um, transcription. Um, and I met Ralph Rinsler around that time, uh, and he said, oh, uh, why don't you do some field research for the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. Oh, how about that? <laughs> what a nice opportunity. Yes. But now, that, did these things pay? Was this sort of like one job to another as a freelancer? Or was it sort of like, well, it kind of doesn't matter because I can go work for at the whatever store or whatever in between well, I mean, and make it, money? it all paid. It paid little. I mean, I, I don't know what I was getting at Folkways and Oak Publications. I was paid by the hour. Um, so my time was my own in that if I had something out of town, it was okay. I could mm-hmm. leave. Um, and I did take a full-time job, I think, in 1964 uh, with Folkways and Oak Publications. And it felt 
awful. <laughs> and I did it, and I remember carving out a bird in a rubber, uh, a rubber eraser, and that became my, my uh, insignia, you know. It was like I was caged bird. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us but, might not be meant for uh, traditional <laughs> employment <laughs> schedules. Yeah, so... Um, so that I think it was that lasted about a year, and then in '65, that's when I moved to Philadelphia, and I was uh, back to freelancing. And uh, by 1968, I started teaching. Let's see, this—it's an interesting thing that happened. Bill Vanover, you know that name? Uh, no, but not as well as I should. No, but. no, no. He played on one of the Penny Whistler records, and he is a musician and singer, and. American and Greek, and he married Olivia Drapkin. Oh, I hope I have her, li- her last name right. Um, and they have a group up in uh, around New Paltz, um, and I don't remember the name of the group. I, uh, but at any rate, Bill lived in Philadelphia, and he came over and he said, you know, can you teach a group of us to sing like you did with the Penny Whistlers? Mm-hmm. Was the Penny Whistlers over at that point? No, no, no. Okay, no, still we, going. we were thriving. This was 68. We sang until about 1974. Okay. Formally. And when did you start? Uh, about 1962. Okay. That's a I nice think, run. Yeah, yeah. I think it was 62. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was right after uh, Finland. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then he mentioned you wanted to uh, And he said, people. would you do that? I said, well, you know, uh, yeah, okay, let's give it a go. So seven, eight people would come to my home once a week, and I would <laughs> sing the Penny Whistler repertoire. We would talk about voice production and, and getting out of sound. I mean, <laughs> it's terrible when you live 80 years because you have all these chapters, and they're intense chapters. Yeah. And I remember when I came back from... Uh, California in 1961 and I had heard this woman sing uh, I think she must have been part of Amman maybe or one of the West Coast groups and she was singing Ladarke, a Croatian suite Um, and I heard her voice and I said wow I've only heard that style of singing on record, I've never heard it in person if she can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so I went back to my little Bronx apartment and I went into my closet <laughs> in my little hallway and wailed and experimented with, you know, getting a different kind of sound out. You have to know that when I went to school, they sang Columbia's The Gem of the Ocean in some high falsetto voice. <laughs> This was the image of singing for young girls, at least in this setting. Right. You know, uh, there are many other settings where that wasn't the image. But at PS 96, this was the image. Oh, Columbia is the gem of the ocean. I mean, it was was ludicrous. Yeah. And it felt so silly on me. But then there was this voice. So I went into my closet, and so this is what I started doing really with the Penny Whistlers, was getting them out of that image of singing in a tiny little female falsetto voice. Right. I mean, that's what's so wonderful about that Eastern European sort of Balkan styles is very full-voiced singing. Exactly. Exactly. Powerful stuff. Yeah. 
So, um, so I did that, and then that's when I started transcribing the uh, Kutev uh, songs and the lyrics, and I didn't know any Bulgarian, so I would transcribe the syllables and run off to the Bulgarian consulate in New York, and they would put they would make words of my syllables. Wow, that's great! <laughs> it, it was incredible. Yeah, and, and then they would say, "Oh, this is a very old-fashioned word." Of course, it was yeah. the folk music. Folk music, yeah. Um, so I would do that, and then I met Philippe Kutev. And oh, really? I did. He the, the Javan Ensemble came to New York, I think, in 1964. And I interviewed him in French because I didn't speak any Bulgarian and he oh. didn't speak any English and my French was very poor. <laughs> but at least, you know, we could have a conversation. And he gave me seven little thin, slim volumes of the arrangements and the songs really? of the group, which was fantastic. That's so interesting. It's actually great that that happened to you in general. That's awesome that that happened to you. But it's also great for this conversation because one of the things that I wanted to sort of tangent on was just that music and so he was the arranger for all those tunes that was his arranging style it's not only arranger he went around the country and picked the singers gotcha and he really had a predilection for really sweet voices Mm -hmm. and and that ensemble is really very different sounding than le mystère which was the ensemble of the radio and television okay so I guess I don't know this earlier stuff then. Well, you may have heard it. You may have heard it. It was the Javan Ensemble. Uh, they recorded. They The first recording, I think, was a 10-inch Philips recording. And then that got bought and was became a 12-inch Angel recording. And then uh, the guy from Electra Records and Al Grossman, I think it was the he, they paid to have it put out on Electra. Mm-hmm. So there's an Electra recording of the Angel recording of the Phillips recording of the Kutev ensemble, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Jack Holzman. Okay. Because so, what's so interesting for me, at least with the Mystere stuff, is how folksy and modern it is, especially those harmonies. And I know that the folk traditions sort of have the seeds of some of that stuff inside it. But at least in the West, people have tried all sorts of these kind of fusions of classical music, and and there's more and less successful stuff. But there, I've that stuff is so particularly successful in fusing the sort of modern harmonic sensibility or classical or, you know, sensibility into that folk music. And I was just wondering, like, yeah, who was this guy? But you met him. Yeah, he was extraordinary, and his arrangements are very different from Le Mystère, because Le Mystère, the arrangements and various other people that got involved had much more complex arrangements. And I think the thing that was so ear-catching uh, for the both choirs is that the singing was a traditional style of singing overlaid with this very sophisticated harmony. Less so for Kutev. He he would do stuff in thirds. He would maintain drones, you know, and in the western part of Bulgaria, a lot of the singing is done with a drone mm-hmm. and the melody traveling over that. Uh, and then a little bit more complex in some of the villages, Satovja, some interesting three-part harmony but drone-based, 
it was that juxtaposition of this open singing with these harmonies. And the other thing is that, especially for Kutev's group, um, it was still an untempered scale they were singing in, yeah. in harmony, which is interesting. Yeah. You know, how does that work? Right. Well, it worked. <laughs> yeah, you just go for it. Yeah, it was uh, just amazing. So that's the piece with uh, with the Bulgarian, with the getting the words, getting the music. And then I went to Koprivtica in 1965 for my honeymoon. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> and um, and I met Raina Katsarova, a fantastic ethnomusicologist and a, just a fantastic person. Wonderful. And she... Uh, took me under her arm, and she would point out, "This is in seven. This is in this is in five. This is in nine. And so I first had my uh, exposure to a whole host of mixed meters. And I guess the Penny Whistlers had already been singing Polegnala, which is an eleven. But it was wonderful to sit with Raina, and they allowed me to record. Um, and she explained everything as it was going on. She took me under her wing. It was lovely. What were you recording on? Uh, well, that was another story. I was recording on a Nagra. What was a? A Nagra was the first, I believe it was the first portable uh, professional machine. Okay. Reel to reel. Yeah. And I knew about this because Jack Holzman, I think his friend Kudelski in Switzerland, uh, was making this Nagra. And so there I schlepped <laughs> up to some city in Switzerland, Lucerne? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe not. But at any rate, um, I was with Hetty West. We drove from England to Switzerland. I picked up, right, so it was my honeymoon, but then um, Jesse uh, couldn't go. <laughs> Wait, your husband? Um, my, right. So he he went back to New York, and Hetty West and I <laughs> drove to <laughs> to through Switzerland, and then um, then into Bulgaria through uh, Yugoslavia. In those days, former Yugoslavia, and uh, so we picked up the Nagra, and uh, it was a machine that you could literally drop down a mountain, and it still worked. Right. It was fantastic. thinking about klezmer music right uh, okay i mean what a weird thing this idea of klezmer music you know so you had been 
Yiddish was a part of your life. Yiddish mm-hmm. songs are a part of your repertoire, but it was never a sense of, seems like it was never a sense of, well, we have to do Yiddish music mm-hmm. as opposed to all the musics that you're interested in. It was just one of peace. Yeah. But you know that, um, so I had met Zev Feldman, I guess somewhere in the mid-60s, maybe 66 or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and he ended up playing with the Penny Whistlers on our recording that we did in 1967. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, he and Bill were okay. on that recording. What was he playing, percussion or? Bill? No. Zev uh, was Zev. playing uh, tapan. Uh-huh. And Bill was playing my tambura. So when I joined Martin Koenig with the Balkan Art Center, which was about 1975, I met Martin in 1965. Right after I came back from Koprivstitsa, he was very interested in Balkan dance and wanted to go to Bulgaria, had good connections with what was then called a Committee for Friendship with Foreign Countries. And so he wanted to borrow my Nagra, which he did in 1966, and he made his first trip, I think that was his first trip, in 66, and his trips were 66 to 71, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Every summer, you know, he would he was a teacher at Seward Park High School, um, and he would uh, his passion was Balkan dance, and he would go off uh, and record and film his beautiful photographer. You know, he has a book out of gorgeous photographs. And so, in 1968, the Penny Whistlers. Uh, had performed at the Newport Folk Festival. Okay. So I already knew Ralph, not that well, but I knew him. Um, He already was interested in the fact that I loved traditional styles so much and that, that it meant so much to me. So in 1968, he invited me to the evaluation of the Newport Folk Foundation who People. is Ralph? Ralph Rinsler. Oh, he's a giant. I just need to know. Yeah, he's a giant. He he started the Folklife Festival in Washington. Okay. He was uh, the field researcher for the Newport Folk Festival. Uh-huh. He was the inspiration for them having traditional singers come to that festival, and they would get the big names for the big stage: Judy Collins, Joan Baez, and then Dylan. I guess by 1964, mm-hmm. and the Loving Spoonful, and blah blah blah. Um, and Ralph would make sure that they would have someone like Mississippi John Hurt, Almeida Riddle, Doc Watson. So Ralph was uh, passionate around traditional music. He was a wonderful mandolinist and was someone who really sparked and um, moved along a lot of careers in traditional music and traditional arts. He gotcha. started working at the Smithsonian, I guess, already in 68, because he was already with the Smithsonian in 68. And so he invited me to the evaluation meeting, and they were all you know, saying what a wonderful festival they had. And then Ralph turned to me and said, Ella, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, oh, it was tremendously exciting for me to meet people that I have only heard on recordings, um, and 
It was wonderful. The only thing that was missing for me were the accents that I grew up with. Mm. It wasn't there, and there's so much, you know, I'd already met so many people who sang in other languages in, you know, traditional singers. Um, and, so, and so Ralph immediately uh, set about to give me $3,000 from the Newport people and money from the Smithsonian. He said, okay, will you do field research and bring these people to our festival? Wow. And I'll tell you an interesting story around that and that whole concept of, you know, accents that I grew up with. Because this music in that was thriving in uh, ethnic immigrant communities was so under the radar, except for Tex-Mex, except for um, the music in the Southwest, um, and some of the music Ralph had already brought. Cajun music was not as much under the radar. Ralph had already, and Lomax had already worked with Cajun musicians. Mm -hmm. And Ra Ralph had brought uh, the Balfa Frere, the, the Balfa brothers from Louisiana, wonderful Cajun musicians. Really unbelievably gorgeous. And so I started to do some field research. I didn't know how to do field research. Uh -huh. I mean, I never went to, I didn't learn about interviewing or anything or anything. I mean, I just sang and loved the music and, and, and learned on my own. And um, so Ralph worked with me in New York City, and he said, all right, let's go on 14th Street. That's, you know, a lot of uh, Spanish-speaking people from Spain, actually, that whole block from uh, 8th Avenue, 9th Avenue to 7th Avenue on 14th Street, a lot of Spanish restaurants. So we went into the mm -hmm, record shop. Yeah. And uh, we asked, are there any local musicians? And the guy said, oh, yeah, Antonio Mosquera. He's a bagpiper. He's from Galicia. So we got his uh, information, his coordinates. We went out to Long Island. He's a baker, wonderful bagpiper mm -hmm. from Galicia. And we brought Antonio and his granddaughter to the festival wow. the following year. That was a first. And um, we also went on 8th Avenue. There was Kentricon, I think it was called, the Greek record shop. And we asked whether there's any uh, local musicians. And so he opened up his big Greek newspaper. And he said, here, well, let's see what societies are having what events. Because all the societies, I mean, people think of Greek community as one community. Right. It's all of the little individual regional communities, the Ponts, the Cretans, the Iperotti, um, they all have their own societies. So that night, there was something in the Pontic community. And so we went. It was at Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace was a place where all the different communities held their events. So you might have the Hungarians on the top floor, the Italians on the next floor, the Ponts on the second floor, someone else on the first floor, and it was a hotbed of music from New York City, immigrant music. And so we went in. Ralph was a little impatient. You know, we walked in, and there was kind of an American Greek dance band playing, about four people up kind of dancing. Everyone was sitting and eating. And he said, let's go. I said, wait, wait, let's, let's see. And sure enough, in about 15 minutes, 
a single guy gets up, Bozinos Bellios, who was Roma, got up and started playing the lira, and everybody got up on their feet, from the 90-year-olds to the 6-year-olds and younger, and they danced. This floor vibrated. I thought for sure <laughs> we're going to land on the floor below <laughs> because that Pontic dancing had that wonderful da da, and the, everyone is stamping at the same time, wow. and the floor is vibrating, and it was an extraordinary scene. Yeah, just extraordinary. And so, um, and so, this was my early experience of doing field research, which was you know go where the community is. And speak to people, and there are people in the community who aren't themselves necessarily the musicians, the movers and the shakers that way, but they are so in love and passionate about their own culture that they want to not only participate all the time, they want to share it. They want Americans to know about it. Mm. So Tommy Tormanides um, was the guy who came over, and we started speaking with him, and we invited the musician down to the Smithsonian, and we made all of our arrangements. And that was the New York piece. And then I went out to western Pennsylvania, uh, Aliquippa, uh, to work with Serbian and Croatian musicians to bring them to the festival. And they were living in western Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. They're all steel workers. Of course. Yeah. And I, I called Dick Crum because he was very active, of course, with Duquesne and speaks spoke about 10 different languages he le- taught himself romanian because he grew up in a romanian community wow. he was irish all um, right and he said there's an old there's a club where i used to see some old timers and he gave me the name of someone who was one of those old timers so i called the somebody it was matt prigoritz uh and i went to his house and sure enough, he had a band called the Old Timers. <laughs> and they played Croatian music. It was beautiful. Amazing. Uh, with tamboritsa, the instrument in the tamboritsa family, the a Bugaria, which is the mpa, 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 offbeat. Mm-hmm. And then the brach, which was second. And then the prim, which was the first melody instrument. And they were wonderful. And his daughter, Francie, sang. She was blind. A uh, beautiful, beautiful voice. And uh, so we talked about bringing them to the festival as well. Um, Francie and someone actually did come to the festival. Uh, the Pantaglia player did not show up. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Um, be- you know, it's really, I, it's almost in anything that you do, but especially uh, with a first-generation immigrant community, that sense of trust is not there. Sure. And for good reason, many times. Um, And so it really was a process of gaining trust and developing the kind of relationship of mutual trust where people were more open about who they were and what they wanted and their aspirations and what they did and all of that, and a sense of accountability both ways. You know, one that you're going to pay them which was always something that the Smithsonian did, although they could have paid more or should have paid more, but and I'll get to the Balkan Arts Center back there. It's okay, we've got plenty of time. Uh, that was so important to always pay musicians. Yeah. 
And so two stories that I need to interject. One is that the following year at the festival, we were featuring that. So that year, the Smithsonian Festival would feature uh, one of the states. And that year, they featured Pennsylvania, um, which is why we went and did field research in Pennsylvania. Uh, The following year, I think the state of Maryland was being featured. At that festival, one of the lyra players came down with Tommy Torminides and five or six other Greek Pontic fellows. Mm. They said, we're here. (laughs) 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 It was beautiful. That's so great. (laughs) (laughs) So we got them onto a stage for sure, and and they were spectacular. So that's one story. The other story is um, Kenny Goldstein, who was a folklorist Mm -hmm. and probably the head of the department at Penn. Yeah. Um, And I I told him about, I played uh, three generations of singing, of Serbian-Croatian singing, and I'm trying to remember... Yeah, I played the old timers, and then I played something with Francie, and then I played one of the more contemporary groups from Western Pennsylvania. There were so many bachelor, I guess bachelor, small ensembles of tamborita players. And Kenny said, oh, well, when were you over there? Hmm. I said, Kenny, I recorded this here. He said, these musicians live here? Right. I said, you bet. You know, it's talk about under the radar. There was such a thriving tamboritza. I mean, there were there was a national organization. There were large conventions. There were choruses from the Serbian communities of of all the different locations that came and and convened and sang for each other and stayed in each other's homes. There was so much music going on. Yeah. And and this is the folklore department at Penn. Right, they didn't know about it. They didn't know about Unbelievable. it. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's really an incredible set of stories. One thing that struck me is it seems like this was a big transition for you from your love of this music from around the world and your love of these musicians from around the world and being accountable to them in a different way from really just learning from them from recordings to learning from them and dealing with them in person. Well, um, yeah, it, it was interesting. You know, the, the people that I first heard singing songs in other languages were people who were not of those cultures. Um, and you had someone like Theo, you know, sure. back in the 60s and 70s. Um, he was singing Russian gypsy songs and, and Yiddish songs so beautifully. Oh, yeah. Um, and he would sing a Scottish song, and he would sing another kind of song. And um, uh, But Theo was such a natural. I mean, his singing was very, very special. But so many other people were singing, and it was it was sort of hollow, you know. The notes were there, the words were there, and there was no sense of the essence mm-hmm. of the music. And it was extraordinary for me from the time that that Newport meeting happened and that I started to do field research and work with people from the culture. That's when I started work with uh, Balkan Art Center. It was 1975. Mm-hmm. And by 1977, 
I already knew Zev, and he was already working with Andy Statman and Dave Tarris, and they had an idea, uh, you know, is there a way we could get some money to support our project? Right. I said, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> and and we worked on a grant proposal to bring Dave Tarris out of retirement. Right. Um, and the person on the other end was none other than Ted Levin. He was an intern at the time yeah. with the folk arts program. So I was in contact, and that's how I got to know Ted. Uh, and that was a great liaison. And we did get the funding. We did do the Terrace concert. Right. And we got funding for the something we call the Jewish Music Tour. Not a very original or catchy name. Sure, yeah. But that's what it was. And Mark Slobin was our MC. He right. would introduce the program. And there was Dave with his group and Andy and Zev. And even the concert in 1978, getting back to me, uh, Martin said, oh, Ethel, you have to sing. You have to sing on the program. Yeah. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> it's all on YouTube, folks. Check it out. <laughs> so that is really the moment that I got involved with singing a, a serious a, a serious involvement uh, with Yiddish singing and an exploration of the repertoire. Uh, and it was a very, very exciting time for me. And so I sang at almost all of the concerts that we did with Dave. We must have done maybe eight or nine mm -hmm. locally, and we would call them runouts because there was no way we were going to have Dave travel, you know, and stay somewhere for two days and then travel somewhere else. He would never have been able to do it. So, and then uh, that's when I worked with Fagel Juden, who's a seamstress, a uh, left winger. Also Friend featured on that concert, right? Yes. I just watched the video. Of that. Oh, she's wonderful. She really is. And she was a friend of my dad's. Oh, and, cool. And, and Ruth Rubin had recorded uh, her for, uh, she's part of the Ruth Rubin archives. Gotcha. And Fagel's husband, uh, Avram Yudin, mm -hmm. is, on, uh, is in the archives mm -hmm. singing a wonderful Hasidic Nigun. That's great. Yeah. So this is so interesting because now we've sort of come full circle or, or at least we've gone from uh, the multiculturalism of the 50s and 60s, and which makes sense to me in perspective of like, we got to get this world together, you know, right? And you're just, we, it's the whole world now is open, you know? And then coming back in the 70s to your own culture, but in a completely different way, not only with the singing, which I definitely want to hear a lot about, but with this instrumental music that's sort of coming back out of nowhere and then being put on the concert stage for the first time, or at least one of the first times, in a way that was never featured before. I mean, right. this is a huge shift in the way this Jewish culture existed in relationship to the Jewish community and the rest of the world, and you're right in the middle of that. Right. So there's another big transition. So what's it like, what was it like going from absorbing the whole world mm. to really moving into a Jewish context or a Jewish musical thing? It's such a very different, sounds like a very different way of relating to music for you. It was very different. I mean, all of a sudden, it was my own culture. Right. You know, and Dave Taris would say, Ethel... Why do you call yourselves the Balknacht Center and you're working with Jews? 
<laughs> so, of course, we had already expanded the scope of uh, communities we were working with, but Irish community, uh, Italian community was not Balkan community, and that we eventually changed the name to the Ethnic Folk Art Center. But we were the Balkan Art Center when we started working with Dave. Um, it was it was extraordinary because we could see that at that point, the people that came to that concert were the people for whom Dave played the weddings for. Right. And, you know, so it was an older community that came. Uh-huh. And a few younger people. Krakow were there. Krakow was there. Yeah, David. Hankus said he was there. Um, who? Hankus said yeah, he was there. Yeah, and a number of strays. Yeah, yes, right. Were there. Uh, and, um, yeah, that concert definitely sparked a whole new perspective and participation in Jewish culture. So what was it like for you as an artist, you know, changing focus or maybe even just changing the way that you're focusing your work, you know? Well, it was, it, it was interesting. I, was, I had been teaching Balkan singing workshops, which I kind of introduced, you know, there was back there in Philadelphia with Bill Vanover. Right. And then when I came, then Marty found out about this in 1968, and he had me teach at his festival, mm-hmm. which he had been putting on at Barnard called the Winter Folk Festival, Balkan Art Center Winter Folk Festival. Mm-hmm. And he said, Ethel, you have to teach a workshop in Balkan singing. I said, I had 200 people in the room. Right. Uh, <laughs> it was wonderful. I loved it. Great. And the thing that started shifting is as I came into contact with more and more people from the Balkans, and they could start teaching. I mean, I was teaching Balkan singing from about 1968 through, oh, I don't know what year I, 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 I stopped, maybe 76. I'm really not that sure. I was teaching classes in New York, mm-hmm. Balkan singing, uh, two and three a week. Wow. Yeah, and workshops around the country, California, Vermont, Boston. So then we get to 1978, and I was teaching less and, yeah, I was teaching less and less uh, Balkan music. And it wasn't until, and this is really interesting, it wasn't until 2010. So we're talking 1980, 81, mm-hmm. where I'm performing with Dave on the concerts and with Fagel and other people that um, we identified and that we brought onto the stage, wonderful singers. And I think what happened between 82 and, and 2010 was just such heavy involvement. I think I was working, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. So... It was work, 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 work. And in 2010, I got a call from Alan Byrne. Mm-hmm. And he said, Ethel, I understand you sing Yiddish folk songs. Yiddish. Right. I said, yeah. At any rate, I was hired by Alan in 2010 to teach, to teach traditional unaccompanied Yiddish singing, which I did in 2010, 2011, 2012 at Weimar. So so I was I was thrilled to yeah. go in 2010, although it was such a strange experience, because in in 2010, 95 percent of the student body at Weimar 
were German. Sure. And five, someone from England, someone from France, someone from the Netherlands. And I was really questioning myself, why, what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. But that was the beginning, because I said serious in 1981 around Yiddish singing. But what happened for me in 2010 was that complete transition of teaching myself Bulgarian singing and not with an amazing slow downer, but learning the styling, the ornamentation, the embellishment, the, the flow, the phrasing, so much about the style. And all of a sudden, 2010, I'm sort of part of the source. Yeah. Without knowing it. Yeah. So my, the source that I used was Lifsha, Itzik's grandmother, Lifsha, Shechter Widmann, and by then I did have the amazing slowdowner. Right, right. And all of a sudden I realized I don't know how to teach you to singing because so I don't know what I'm doing. Interesting. You know, it's I'm doing it. I'm not thinking about how to do it. Uh-huh. With the Bulgarian, I had to work on those ornaments. I had to work on being able to do uh, glottals. Right. You know, and, and, and all of it, you know, I, it, was a, it was a study. Right. And here, it's like, oh, my God, what am I doing? And so I had to sing it myself and listen to myself and say, oh, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> it was so bizarre. Reverse engineering. It was, it was a, a really strange experience. And it was so, I mean, it's such a godsend and so helpful to have Lifsha because there she was, and I could slow her down, and I could hear exactly what she was doing. So I got a, a really good feeling for the whole toolbox, as it were, the whole range of gesture, musical gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was extraordinary. It was... I was in heaven. spazieren bin ich mit meinem Geliebten gegangen. Vergangen sind mir in a tiefen Wohl. Vergangen sind mir in a tiefen Wohl. Oi hat mir nicht gewollt geheulen. In hintergestellt habe ich mein Holz. Oi hat mir niem gewollt geheulen. In hintergestellt habe ich mein Holz. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, in some way a widening of the audience is in its ascendancy. Definitely. You see that happening now. Oh, I mean, look at a group like Sibylla. I know. I mean, I worked with Eleanor. She mm-hmm. was my apprentice. Yeah. You know, and look at her. She is in full bloom. Yeah, they are rocking. And making wonderful music and extending it and drawing heavily on the roots. That is in its ascendancy. And that's a group that, you know, people are what? 28 to 34. Yeah. <laughs> and I think in terms of what I observe in terms of people's interest in traditional singing, 
uh, it's much stronger now, and people are much more serious now. I mean, when I came to Yiddish New York this year, you know, as a teacher, you never know who's going to be there, right? Yeah, right. So you prepare up the wazoo, right? Mm-hmm. You have a song that's a little easier. You have a song that no one has ever heard in a million years. You have something that's very hard. You have something that's more accessible. Someone who doesn't speak the language, less words. I mean, so many things to consider. And I had decided uh, I would take, I would do at least one of the songs would be a hard one. Yeah. Well, I was amazed how fast they learned. Mm. And this was everybody. Yeah. And that was a hard song. <laughs> That's great. Really, I, it was just amazing. So I came away very, very, very excited about what's happening in terms of singing and the and people's interest in knowing it, understanding it, absorbing it, and being able to do it. It was very exciting. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> so that might actually be uh, maybe a nice spot to wrap up on. What do you think? Yeah, that could be. I mean, we could just do a few more of these. I know. Well, we, we will. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, well, it's wonderful having the conversation with you because of what you bring to it in terms of your experience and your curiosity and your ability to synthesize. I mean, you're wonderful. Oh, thanks, Ethel. In plain English. Yay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, Dan. Well, that's my conversation with Ethel Rehm, the great Ethel Rehm. There's really nobody like her. I was really surprised by a lot of those stories, and it's just amazing how she's been in the thick of things for her entire career. It was a real pleasure to talk to her and get to hear all this great stuff. And that's all I got for this time. I have one more episode in the can that I'm going to prepare featuring the amazing Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet. So stay tuned for that in a couple weeks. And in the meantime, have a good Shabbos. And in however way you're celebrating, Azizen Pesach.